Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches with three Amarillo locations, Sancy and I-40, Western and Olson, and downtown across from the ballpark. Now you might be wondering why a big restaurant chain would be sponsoring a local podcast like this one. Well... These franchise locations are all owned and operated by an Amarillo resident who is passionate about adding jobs and resources to this area. And right now, everyone's talking about the combo value at Jimmy John's with sides and drinks for just a dollar. So the next time you want a delicious sandwich, think about Jimmy John's. Today's guest is Michael Hanning. And Michael's one of those people that you might meet and think, oh, he's a really nice guy. Uh, he seems to know a lot of stuff and, and not have any idea of all the things that he's involved with. Michael is a serial entrepreneur who started multiple Lubbock businesses before he came to Amarillo. And he came to Amarillo to work for his family business, where he's now the president. It's Diversified Industrial Service Company, otherwise known as Disco, and it's a machine and mechanical production shop. And Michael will be the first to, to tell you, you'll you'll look at him and he doesn't look like Uh, the kind of guy who would run a machine shop. But that's what's interesting. But he's also the co-founder of Acton Academy, a brand new learner-driven private school here in Amarillo. So we cover a lot of interesting territory in this one, from assembly lines and machine parts to how people learn to the differences between Lubbock and Amarillo. So here's Michael Hanning. Michael Hanning, welcome to the Hamrella Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, I I know that we've got a lot of different directions that this conversation will probably take, uh, so I'm excited to pursue those. But I want to start the same way I start with every guest and just ask why you're here. So how did you end up in the Amarillo area? Well, I ended up in Amarillo via Borger, I would say. So I grew up, born and raised in Borger, and... I've heard some of your other guests say this, but when you grew up in Borger or Pampa or Dumas or Spearman or Amarillo is this shining city that oh, it's got Westgate Mall and the Kabuki Steakhouse. Yeah. And Borger's not like a tiny town. I mean, those are it's not towns a tiny of town. eight to 10 to 12,000. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not nothing out there. It's nothing, but Amarillo is, I, I, I was thinking about this. I really did not understand the difference between Dallas and Fort Worth and Amarillo until I was 13 or 14 years old. Because when you come to Amarillo, you go down I-40 and you may go to the mall, but there's this both sides. So, wow, how far does it go that way? And I just remember thinking as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, like, one day, wow, maybe I could live in Amarillo. That would be cool. And uh, and so Amarillo's kind of always held this this place in my heart that is just kind of cool and and... This is this this place that was better than I guess where I grew up. Okay. Did you spend your whole childhood in Borger? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that where you grew yep. up? Grew up, graduated high school there, and then went to I went to Lubbock to Texas Tech, and then moved back to Amarillo and went to work in our family business. Okay. Mm-hmm. And like, was that just a given that you were going to go to college and then come back to the family business, or like, did you push against that? I know some kids yeah. love that idea. Some kids are like, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do something new." Great question, and it's my, you know, my dad is is my hero and just done so many things for me. But one of the things he did when I was probably 17 or so or 18, we started talking about it, and I said, 
hey, you know, I don't think I want to do the college thing. I'm just going to go. I love I love working in the shop. From when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, I loved being in and around our machine shops. And I worked there at high school and just, man, this is what I want to do. I love this. And he said, well, no, that's fine, but you're going to go to college first. And then you can you can decide once you see what else is out there, then you can come back because what you don't want to do is be 30 years old and realize, I don't know what else is out there. Yeah. And you've got a wife and kids and a business and you don't really want to be here. So he did a, it was called the Texas tomorrow program, right. which was when I was in third or fourth grade, he locked in the average price of tuition and paid on that, which was super smart. I don't think they did that because I think it like went upside down or something. You, yeah. I, I don't know that it lasted, but like that, like that was something that, you know, when my kids were young that like we were super aware of. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're paying $30,000 tuition now and it, you know, back then it could have been yeah. $6,000. Exactly. So, yeah. so I paid with credits, not when I went and paid like for my classes, I didn't pay a dollar amount. I paid with credits. So he bought credits, you know, 10 years earlier. So he said, look, I'm going to, I, you know, so just very fortunate he did that. And so when I went to Lubbock and went to school, nothing ever changed. I never said, Oh, you know what? Being a doctor sounds like fun or engineering or anything. You're just like, you know what? I, I want to go work in the family business. I love that. I love the people. I love the industry. And so, yeah, I just always, that was what I was going to do. And it was really interesting when I came back, I worked for about a year and a half. Yeah. About a year and a half. And then I found out, I can't remember how I found out, but he, or maybe he told me, but they got a very serious offer uh, to sell the company, to sell mm. their business. Him and my uncle owned it. And looking back on it now, I was a entitled, naive, immature 23-year-old. And I was like, well, you, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't sell the business. That's my future. This is my future. And he said, very gently said, yes, I can. And that's what we're going to do if this is the right decision for us. And so... That, that's a long process when you're selling a, mm-hmm. a business. And so anyway, it ended up falling through. But in the meantime, I just said, it made me realize, I thought, well, I don't want to work for anyone. And uh, golly, maybe I should do something different. I don't know. So struck up some conversations with some buddies in Lubbock. And before the decision, yes or no, to sell the business was ever made, I moved back to Lubbock and started, I moved in with uh, some friends and we started a media company doing website design and graphic design and so you were you were already giving yourself sort of oh, an yeah. exit yeah. strategy. Yep. And so ended up being in Lubbock for, you know, which was a great thing for me. It started um partnered up with a guy, started a restaurant, started a CrossFit gym, had the media company going and met my wife in Lubbock that that go around that time. And uh and at some point I just always knew and longed for this back in Amarillo. And we can get into the difference between Lubbock and Amarillo here in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Some people really appreciate those conversations. Right. And I'm telling you, I never felt at home in Lubbock. It was a place that was super fun and got lots of friends there, but it felt there's such a different feeling between Lubbock and Amarillo. And I always, I always wanted to be back here. And there was always this kind of pull to be back in the business and, and do that. So I don't remember how it unfolded, but those conversations started happening and I was only married for probably five or six months before we decided, you know what, let's go back. Let's go back to Amarillo and get, you know, kind of divest herself of this stuff in Lubbock and, and go back to Amarillo. Okay, so b- before we go much further, I, I feel like we should uh, maybe educate the audience a little bit. So you've, you've mentioned the family business and the machine shop. Mm-hmm. Tell, 
Tell us what that is exactly and what it does. Right. So our so our company is called Disco Diversified, and it used to you know back in the seventies they got lots of funny calls and Hey What Time's Happy Hour is called Disco, and it was Disco back in the seventies. Oh yeah, right? okay. absolutely. It was call. before John Travolta and all that, but it was called Disco Diversified Industrial Service Company. And my grandfather started um, started a, a business right when going from the war, and then it eventually became Disco in nineteen sixty eight. And uh, it's it's been servicing the industrial, it was oil field drilling stuff for a while around here. And then in the 80s, it kind of got into compression, the natural gas compression in the area. And so we're, we do machine shop work. And then in 2000-ish, 2001, we got into doing uh, working for Tyson and the packing plants that are okay. around here. And so, you know, it's, it's funny because I am not naturally mechanically inclined. I'm not the guy at home that's working on my truck or fixing this or that. I got to call people to do that. But I distinctly remember, and anyone who's not this way will walk into a place, like my friends that walk into our business, they look around and it's just, it's unbelievable what what people are creating in and mm-hmm. around our shops. And I remember as a, as a 12-year-old boy, you I mean, forklifts are like the coolest thing. So you walk into a shop, I remember walking in with my dad and there were guys, you know, you got a lathe running and a part in it and chips are flying and there's guys on forklifts and hoister running up and down. And you're just a little boy. You're like, this is the best thing ever. And that has always struck me. And as I grew up and, and work, went to work in the shops, you know, they, they, they obliged me and I got to run a lathe and run some parts, but mostly I was cleaning up and, you know, bead blasting parts and yeah. nothing very complicated that actually had to be done right. Welding, I'm, I'm not a welder. But I am still to this day, these guys in our shops are just so talented and the stuff they pull off and the amount of time they pull off, it's, it's still, it still amazes me. And we started a fabrication shop about six years ago. We weren't into the welding fabrication side of things until about six years ago. And this is a whole other learning curve for us. And our guys, you know, we've got press breaks and shears and it's, it's just incredible. And so I've still to this day, I'm really, that's not my gifting. I'm much more of a, let's go start a business and run it. I can do that end and the finance and accounting stuff, but the machine shop side of it and the actually getting the work done, these guys, I, I'm still just, as I was as a little boy, I can still walk in and go, man, that's awesome. That is so cool. Yeah. And that's, that's something that is an interesting you know, thing to think about because the, the way you describe Lubbock and what you're doing there, it's it's the work of a serial entrepreneur, somebody who like, oh, here's an idea. I'm going to do this thing, start a website business, start a restaurant, whatever, uh, CrossFit gym. But like applying, that's that's not something everybody can do. Yeah. But taking that and putting it in this, you know, blue collar machine shop environment um, where you've got a lot of clients, you've got a lot of opportunities, you've got, you know... the idea of opening a, a fabrication site. I mean, that does require some entrepreneurship mm-hmm. that doesn't always exist in that world. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, like, putting those two worlds together, like, if if you figured out, okay, I'm, I'm the right person in this place to carry on the family business yes. and do all that stuff. Exactly. And right now, we're in the talks of, I mean, we're we're like 1% away from pulling the trigger on opening a Lubbock, a shop in Lubbock, kind of doing the same thing. And that's what it is. I saw, I know a guy that has been a customer of ours and he's a younger guy and he's very, very talented and, and he's, he's just a great, I think it'd be a great fit. And so there's not really anyone in Lubbock doing exactly what we do. So it's kind of like, Hey, 
And I'm also going into these shops because it's funny on the, I mean, if you want to call blue collar, the machinist mechanic kind of side, they look at people with a college degree as this, this person that's like untouchable. And I'm going in going, no, 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 no. College degrees are, yeah, I've got a, yeah, I've got an MBA from tech, but I'm telling you, that doesn't mean anything. I, what I do is not more important than you. Just because I have a computer and you stand at a lathe, that means nothing. Yeah. There's no difference. I'm fascinated by people who can just do stuff like right. that, whether it's like, you know, put pipes together right. and fix the plumbing or anything. I'm just like, man, that is a whole nother world that I'm not prepared to I know. be and a I'm, part of. That's right. And I'm telling these guys, I'm kind of, I'm trying to break down that barrier of there's the office guys and the shop guys. I'm like, no, no, no. Like we're so impressed with what you do. I know you think what we do is cool and start getting something started and taking some risk is like this thing you could never think of. Well, also creating that part is something I can't imagine doing myself. Mm -hmm. And so I love kind of bridging those two and kind of breaking down this, you know, management and employee thing that's always existed. It seems since we've started the industrial age, but it just, yeah, it's been, it's been really, really fun mixing the entrepreneurial side with the, you know, the shop side. So the business started in Borger. I know mm-hmm. there's an Amarillo presence. Is there still a shop in Borger? Yeah. The, I guess technically the, our office is still in Borger, but okay. now we've expanded Amarillo so much. We have twice as many employees in Amarillo as we do in, we have two shops in Amarillo and one in Borger. Okay. And we have one in Liberal, Kansas, and then we have a, a sales office in Oklahoma City, but that we don't have to do any work there. And so is, is the business, is it driven by, you know, the growth of these other larger industries like the oil mm-hmm. field, like whatever is going to be using these parts that you guys are manufacturing and all that stuff, you're dependent on all these other industries, right? Yeah. And that's, what's interesting about Amarillo and how we are uniquely kind of insulated by all these different, we, we have a lot of different industries surrounding us. Where if you think about, you know, Midland Odessa, you, what do you, everyone thinks oil field, right? The price of oil determines what's going on over there. When you think of, I don't know, like Wisconsin, that's cheese. When right. you think of these scenarios, but Amarillo, we have, we have three or four of the largest packing plants within a hundred miles. We've got a lot of natural gas. We've got two big oil refineries. We've got the dairies. We got the huge cheese plant in Dalhart. Amarillo, you know, the, the common person that works, a whatever, a job that doesn't leave Amarillo and just kind of stays in Amarillo, they have no idea that most of the beef that gets shipped out into the rest of the world comes out of Tyson. Mm-hmm. This is their number one performing plant in Amarillo. The 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 plant in Dalhart, the cheese plant, we do a lot of work there. They make something, I'm going to get the numbers mixed up, but there's something like a million gallons of milk every day goes through that plant to make cheese. That's it's staggering. Un- it's unbelievable. And, you know, in our shops, and that's what people come into our shops and they see these things and you would you drive by these places all the time you drive by these buildings all the time and you have no idea that inside those buildings people are supporting these industries that is feeding the rest of the country that's moving natural gas to heat homes and that's part of what i I love trying to do and kind of share the story of 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 all that because we get into you know the the white the white collar jobs i guess you would say the the computer desk jobs Mm -hmm. and we just don't realize there is so much going on in Amarillo that we have no idea about. These talented, talented people cranking out work and and supporting these industries that are feeding the world and heating homes and putting food on the table. It's just it's a really cool story. And that that it. work is all you know. It's beef or it's milk or whatever. But like all those processes are mechanical. Oh yeah. And there's parts and all that stuff. Yes. And I've always you know anytime I see an assembly line or I see a you know 
a, a big printer or anything like that. I'm just like, who comes up with all these things? Um, and, and realizing that like, it's, it's you guys, I mean, yeah. you're, you're putting together all these systems and the parts for these systems. And, um, that, that thing is just, is fascinating to me because I don't even know where to start to think about it. And I wonder like if you, you know, as, as somebody who is, is managing a place like that, if, if you have that same sort of awe and wonder about it, or if you, you know, are actually seeing down to the details and saying, well, this part, this part, and, and kind of have a sense of how that fits together. Yeah, like that's going going back to just I am I am really amazed at some of the things I walk into because we've got enough locations that sometimes I don't make it to each one every week, and so I may show up. I haven't been to a, a one of our locations in three or four or five days, and I'll walk in and say, "What is that?" And they'll mm-hmm. say, "Oh yeah, this is a, a such and such. It moves the the cheese or the milk or the beef or the such and such, and it goes this." And they're kind of explaining to me how this works, and it's just like, wow. That's really cool. And, and, you know, they, some of these, a lot of these plants don't have engineering staffs anymore. They task guys like us to come up and solve the problem hmm. and then build it and install it. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool getting to be a part of all of that process. It's kind of unseen, but it touches your everyday life. You eat, you go to the store, you heat your home. All of these things impact us in a major way. And, I get to kind of see the I get to see the the behind the scenes version of it. Do you actually have like mechanical engineers? I mean, people designing some of that stuff, or is a lot of it just dependent on the problem solving abilities of of your team? A hundred percent problem problem solving abilities. We okay. we don't have any mechanical engineers. Probably, I don't know, three or four people out of ninety employees have college degrees, but they just that's what's so awesome and so cool about these guys. They will they can reverse engineer anything. Oh yeah. They can, it's just, it's so cool. It's just, it's, it's really cool. So no, no, no on staff engineers, just guys that know what they're doing. Okay. How many, how many employees would you say work for Disco? I think about 90. Okay. Between 90 and 95. Uh And, you know, just, just thinking about like, as, as you have a business like this and you look to the future, you're dependent on work from so many different industries. Like, do you... Are you able to look, you know, five years into the future, 10 years and think, all right, this is where we want to be. We need to expand into this realm. I mean, how do you how do you look forward as the leader of an organization like that? I think exactly what you said, you know, the name of the business is Diversified Industrial Service Company. But from 1980 until about 2000, we were primarily gas compression. That's all that was going through our shops. And then we kind of dipped our toe in the water with the animal processing and the packing plants in the early 2000s, and it took a while to get that going. And then in about 2010, it it really kind of caught some legs, and that kind of diversified us into a different industry, but mm-hmm. not at all enough business to kind of to carry the company or or help if there was a big downturn in the gas industry. And then in 2014, I think. Yeah, 14 or 15, we started a fabrication shop. And that was the whole goal. My whole thinking behind that was this gives us access to a whole other industry and type of work and workforce, too. It's an interesting thing in the trades, which we're lacking. You know, every, mm-hmm. that's yeah. a very common knowledge, whether it's plumbers, electricians, the even more rare skills are people who can run a manual lathe or a milling machine. So, but there are a lot of people that can weld. There's more people that can, so that kind of also the fabrication side was this thing. Well, we have more people and we can pull from that can, they can weld. And so that was kind of another, uh, another thought behind that. So yes, I can't really think in terms of what industries will do or even 
begin to predict that. But what I can do is further insulate us from one fall from the other. In fact, in 2020, that was the big deal. Energy fell off the map. Yeah, absolutely. Oil crashed, natural gas. Basically, in in in, in today's market, in today's in this area, natural natural gas is basically a byproduct because it's cheap enough, and there's so much of it that it's this this thing that when you're drilling for oil and you pull it out of the ground, we got some gas. We'll we'll go ahead and process that too. Yeah. No one's really drilling for natural gas. They're drilling for oil, and that gas comes with it. That fell off. I mean, completely fell off. However. The packing plants and especially the cheese plants were what kept our business. I mean, that's what kept you know money moving around, and so it was really it was just we got really really lucky that that happened to hit that we happened to have that going during twenty twenty because we would have looked different. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's kind of how I think. And in terms of what I want, I I love thinking about building an organization that's really that's really uh, horizontal, not just vertically. Instead of how you know how can we take the burger shop and do more business there? It's like what what other industries can we do in and you know in 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 the people side and developing people that's what our, that's what is really fun for me and you know in the in our in our type of industry and in our in those the, the culture is not talked about and at going and sitting down with a machinist or with someone and saying how do you like working here? Tell me mm-hmm. how could we do things better? Tell me what are your goals in five years? That does not happen in our industry. Yeah, yeah, That's a kind of a common practice in the corporate world, but that doesn't happen. And so that's what I'm doing. And that's what I love looking in people's eyes and asking them what they like doing. Do you, do you like what you're doing or where do you see yourself in five years? And so really almost as much as trying to predict where the industries might go, it's how do we, how do we cultivate and grow the, grow our people? That's probably almost as important as what the gas industry or the beef industry might do. Okay, so I uh, you, you talked about diversification. You talked about growing people. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make a little bit of a hard right turn <laughs> for you because um, I know that you're also involved. You know, outside the machine shop, you're involved in starting up a new educational model, yes. at least new to Amarillo. Yes. The model itself is not new. Yes. Uh, so tell me about Acton Academy and where that idea came from and what it is. Yeah. All right. So the Acton Academy, it's A-C-T-O-N. It's kind of it comes after the name Lord Acton, who said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where the name comes from. Um, some some guys, in, uh, a, a man and his wife in Austin started the Acton MBA program, which was kind of a no frills, very, very real world MBA for people who wanted to get, get in it in a year, get out and start a, start a company. And the short version is when his kids were going to school, he was kind of questioning like, really, what are we doing? Are we really preparing people for the future? So then he said, why can't I take these principles and why can't we do this with elementary, middle and high school kids? And so that's kind of how the Acton Academy was born and it's called learner driven. So what makes it different than every other, what's, what makes it the only thing in Amarillo? It's called learner driven. Okay. And so what it does is it basically turns the model upside down of the traditional classroom. So in our classroom, we don't have a teacher, we have a guide. And the number one rule of an Acton Academy is she is forbidden from, from answering a question hmm. ever. She's never allowed to answer a question. So much so, I mean, she's a Socratic guide. So much so that if she comes in, if you know, if they, if we call them learners, we don't call them students or pupils. We call them learners. If they come in and ask her how was her weekend, she's supposed. There's actually a game where they try to get her to answer questions, and they can you know make ticks on a whiteboard. And uh, but she's going to try to turn around into a question and try to guide them to the answer. 
And so for us, what happened was I, I guess kind of one of the natural tendencies I have and I've always had is kind of questioning like, why, why exactly are we doing that? I know mm-hmm. we've been doing that for 50 years, but is that really the best way to do things? And I never thought about it. I mean, my son was, a, you know, he did, uh, you know, pre, pre-K and the, the mom, Mother's Day out thing. And he's probably, he's getting to be four years old. And I asked my wife, I said, are we just, are we going to, are we going to go to public school? We live right down the street from elementary school. Is that what we're going to do? And the answer was not like, oh yeah, sure. That's mm-hmm. what we did. Like, what? Something's, I don't have an answer to that question. So that kind of sent me down the path of what, what are we, what is school for? You know, I'm 38. So I was early nineties. I was going to school and graduated in 2001, but we didn't have options. We didn't have the internet back then mm-hmm. really like we have it today. And so there weren't options. Homeschooling wasn't a thing, especially in border. And so I just started asking questions. And I think I came to the question of what exactly is school for? We're in the year 2021, and when you do a little research on school, the model that we have today is 150 years old. It hasn't changed. It was brought to it. It was invented because of the Industrial Revolution. Right. Before that, we had one-room schoolhouses. The founding fathers, you know, the the one-room schoolhouse you went to till you were 12, 13, 14, and then you went and apprenticed with someone or down the street for moral instruction. Kind of interesting how they used to do. And And then you went into a trade. And then when we started building factories, we had a problem that we didn't have people to come work in those factories. And it's funny because children would, kids would actually come work for cheaper than adults would back when they, you know, there wasn't a school. So it was like, kids like, oh, I'll go work. Yeah. yeah. And adults were like, well, no, because we want to work. And so anyway, this whole conversation started up and we got the, the public school system that we have today. And it was actually, it worked well for a long, long time. And, you know, the factory and the public school system are set up a lot alike. There's the lockers and the lunchroom and the bell rings and all these things. And it worked really well until it doesn't, until you start questioning and and saying, well, when you get out of school, nothing at all looks like what you just went through and spent your whole entire life doing in in terms of no one tells you where to go or what to do or how to do it. Gives you you worksheets at your desk at the job. My gosh. And so we're now in this place where the world is a lot smaller the internet has made things just flatten the just flattened everything. We now have access to everything, and if you live in the United States, the reality is that there are billions of people around the world that will out obedience you for less money, hmm. and we outsource tasks all the time doing this and that. So, what are we left here in the United States? We want when we want young adults to be leaders to solve interesting problems and create things and start things and be in the service business, but we're not doing that in school. We're still doing the worksheet thing and testing people and giving grades. And then when you get out, it's, you know, that it, you're just kind of left to your own device yeah. to figure this thing out. And now, you know, learning and education are two different things. Education's a, a certificate. It's about accreditation. Learning is this thing where you explore, you kind of try it you may not like it. And, we, that's what we're doing at Acton is we tell every child and every parent that we want them to find a calling that will change the world. You are a writer and a creative guy. I'm, that's the absolute, that's the one thing I'm not. And so if you put us in a school together, we're going to, we're going to get two different outcomes. And there are people that are really, really good at academics and they're, that's kind of their gifting. I was not that that's their gifting. And the, person who's not that good at, at, um, school or, you know, the testing side of things, 
well, then, you know, they're, they're not doing so well. So we're not sure what to do with them. And, you know, in 2021, we're saying, Hey, let's all have a conversation that it's okay. If you don't like to do this or you want to do that, you can, you can really pick your, pick your, your, your place in life. And so at Acton as early as 14, 15, they start apprenticing. They have to go yeah. out and get a one month apprenticeship. So by the time they get to be 18, we want them to say, great college is for doctors, for lawyers, for engineers and architects, people that need these certifications. But if you're not sure, let's just go work somewhere. Let's go maybe start a business that if it fails, there's no, it's okay. You're 18. You can start over. So those are the conversations that we want to have is that we want every child to find a calling that can change the world. And if you're a creative, awesome. We're going to, we're going to kind of lead you down that way. If you're mechanical, we'll lead you down that way. If you think you want to go into medicine, we'll lead you down that way. Entrepreneurship leads you down that way. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, you know, instead of the one size fits all school model where everyone's just going through at the same pace, same time, we want to individualize it and say, everybody is uniquely gifted. What are those gifts? Let's pull them out and let's hammer down on them. And we feel like that is kind of the pathway to living a fulfilling life is let's find your gifts early and not worry about money. And let's pick a job because it pays this much money and all that stuff. That's, that's where people get into trouble later on down the road. It's like, I don't like doing this, but yeah, I got all this. It's the only thing I know. Right. It's the only thing I know. And so when they're 18, we want to arm them with these tools that they can do this project. They know how to code a computer. They've done this project. They've shipped this and done this and tried that. And basically they're, they're a very, very, very competent person by the time they're out of our care. And I should say, I, I have a connect in, or a connection to Acton Academy because my nephews have started attending oh. uh, one in New Jersey where they live. Awesome. And they they were both kids who are super smart. I mean, they you could tell that like they know stuff that you know most eleven year olds, eight year olds, six year olds don't know. Uh, but they struggled in school because just butting up against the structure and the busy work and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And they have thrived in the Acton atmosphere, um, which has piqued my interest about it. But at the same time, you know, here in Amarillo, we have a really strong public school system. Mm-hmm. We have some really strong private schools. And when you have an alternative school structure, like there's often a stigma attached. Like that's where the kids who can't (laughs) hack it in regular school go, or, you know, we're going to homeschool our kids because either we're really religious or we're kind of hippies. I mean, there's, there's always like this, this outsider thing Mm -hmm. attached to it, which Mm -hmm. isn't always helpful, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's a lot of value to alternative schooling. There's a lot of value to homeschooling. Um, and so I, I wonder how you thought about that as you're thinking, okay, you know, my kid's about to, to be of school age. I, I think we want to do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Like, did you, did you have to fight up against that, that stigma? A little bit. I mean, I'll be honest. I Googled Acton Amarillo praying that someone had already done this. And, you know, it's like, well, the closest Acton Academy is in Albuquerque. So, oh, okay. and my wife, you know, it's kind of funny, but I've done this multiple times, kind of walking in, I'm like, hey, babe. So we're we're gonna start a school. I uh, <laughs> that's that ant- entrepreneurial kind of thing. I'm telling though, right? you, I'm you're telling not afraid to do stuff no, like that. No, it's a decision that I'll I'll make instantly and say I've got to do this. This has to happen. Hmm. And so that was the that was honestly I was really hoping someone had already done it. And so doing the research and applying to open the school, I I did think about it, but I really I really wanted to communicate to parents that our goal is. It just makes so much sense to me that if you want, you you are right about 
I, I have a lot of teacher friends in the public school. In fact, our guide came from the public school system, all of which, and I think it's probably the panhandle thing. They just, they deeply desire to make an impact in the children's life. They're not going to be a teacher because they couldn't figure anything else out. Mm-hmm. They deeply want to impact the life of, of, the, of children. And what we're finding from parents coming in is kind of exactly what you described about your nephews is their, you know, their child, there's this, you know, they're, they're like crying at night and the homework and they can't keep up and they're hiring tutors and nobody's stopping and putting up their hands and going, why are we doing this exactly? Is this worth like 11 year olds shouldn't be stressed? Exactly. Like no one's, I think people, we get into this rut of this is just how life is. And at some point, we need to put our hands up and say, hold on, is this really the way it's supposed to be? At Acton, we don't have any homework. We think that if if you can't get your work done in eight hours, then you we, we need to do something different. So I don't know that I thought about the stigma uh, really about if, if you know, coming as an outsider, but it is funny that you think about that. I mean, the homeschool, the either super religious or the hippie on one side, it's kind of like, I don't know where we fit. You know, we're not in the middle. We're not a denominational school. We're not really hippies. I, I don't really know. I, I just kind of reached I mean, It's out a philosophical that, mindset uh, yes. less than a religious mindset. 100%. Yes. 100%. Yeah. It is a it's a philosophical mindset of we're really really concerned with preparing. Like, we don't even have grades at Acton. And so when when parents come and and uh and interview or reach out to us, we up front we're like, "Hey, if you know, if you if you need an A, if you need a report card to make sure that everything is going well, this is not the this is not the school for you." What we do is, you know, core skills that they're online. We do math, reading, language arts, all that stuff online. And we go on quests where we do hands-on real-world projects. So we want them to kind of figure out and learn, like start a business, start a gardening, start a garden, plant, do the you know, butterflies. We're uh, This six weeks we're doing the detective quest. We're doing forensics and trying to figure hmm. out this mystery. But, you know, there's not really a way to, to to test for that or show that. And what I've kind of tried to communicate to parents is these things that were, that I feel like really determine your path in life are called, some people call them soft skills. I call them real skills. It's the ability to create the, the, the choice to be optimistic, hardworking, to take a risk, like you starting this podcast, um, like starting a school, just this innate ability to just kind of get things done. That I don't know how to call that. You know, some people call them soft skills. I call them real skills. But that's we're more focused on that mm-hmm. than we are on how did you do on your spelling test. Yeah, that doesn't always translate to regurgitating information exactly. for a test. Exactly. And you know, I, that's if we want to know when the War of eighteen twelve was, we'll go look it up and mm-hmm. tell you all about it on Wikipedia. But as far as did you do the generous thing? Did you did you were you kind today? Those are the things that we're really focused on in terms of, you know, when you talk about like the philosophical mindset of Acton, it's do, did you do the generous thing? Did you start something? Did you create something? Tell me about it. Tell me about that piece of art that you just drew. How did you come up with that? Those are the questions that we want to have and and talk about and ask. When did you launch Acton Academy? August of 2020. Okay. That's a great time to launch a school (laughs) right in the middle of a pandemic existing schools are trying to figure out how do we continue and you're like let's start a new one right now what, i mean what was that like it was very it was the probably the, the scary or not scary i mean scary that's a bad word oh i remember having the conversation so we we applied and got accepted to open in middle of 2019 and mm-hmm. so we were trying to hustle up families and trying to get just a few people to get come on board with us and a lot of the acton model well the owners will be the guide and so you don't have that salary, that starting salary. Well, we can't, we can't do that. We couldn't do that. 
So we had had a guide who who committed to come with us, and we committed to her salary starting in June, I think, is when she came on full-time with us. And she was an AISD teacher, and so she turned in her resignation. And then February 2020 happened, and it was like, oh, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then March happened, and then April happened, and I think all but one or two families that were going to start called us and said, sorry, we we can't afford to do private school. Sorry. And I remember calling the guide and saying, I'm going to give you one chance to take your job. If you want to take your job back, I completely understand. And maybe we need to start this next year. I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll do school in our basement. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? And she didn't hesitate. She said, Acton is the education model that I think is the, it's, it's absolutely everything I've ever wanted. And I'm in. And I said, okay, we will see what happens. And so we had about two families committed and we had already told her we were going to pay her a full-time salary. So it looked like my partner and I were just going to have a really expensive uh, tutor there yeah. for a while because yeah. that's what we were going to do. We told her we'd do it. And it was interesting. We ended up starting with five families. Okay. And we had eight learners. Three of those were ours, me, uh, myself, and it's Maddie McLean. You know, yeah. You know him? I know Maddie. So Maddie's two boys and mine, and we started with eight. So five families plus our three. And it was interesting. We immediately started getting calls and inquiries after we started. After we we launched, it's kind of like, whew, okay, we got some families. Let's just get through this year, and then we'll talk about mm-hmm. growing the school. Well, then we just kind of started having people call us and ask us. And it was interesting because I would ask them, you know, what's changed? What You know, one of the things I want to know, because Acton's a real special model. We want to make sure you understand what we're doing. We don't just let anyone in because you can afford it. It's, mm-hmm. well, do you, do you understand what we're doing? Because we don't want to have to ask you to leave in two months because you didn't know we don't have grades or something. And so people would say, no, no, no I, I'm getting to see what my kids are doing all day. And they're they've been doing worksheets. And I'm asking yeah. questions about how, is this what you do all day in school? And they're telling me yes. And so COVID and the shutdown sent kids home and parents started seeing, is this, this is what you do all day? Like, you know, yeah, this is what I do. And this is what we do. And some, a lot of the kids would say either one or two things, either their, their, their son or daughter would finish a worksheet and have, you know, 50 minutes of free time because the teacher's helping 20 other kids or, the kid's not good at worksheets and it's frustrating and they're crying and there's tears and they just can't get through it and they're getting behind one of the two, one of the two extremes. And they would say, we just don't want to be doing worksheets. That's not, mm-hmm. that's not cool. And so that's kind of, I mean, we went from eight, we started with eight and now we're at like 19. Okay. So uh, March, March, we're at 19 and we've probably got two or three that are starting with us in the fall. And that's, that's a really interesting thing about a crisis is that it, it kind of sharpens your focus. And so you have some families who are like, I appreciate the public school system more than I ever have. Teachers are saints. I can't yes. handle all of this <laughs> school at home. And others, like you said, have, you know, it's, it's shined a spotlight on what their kids are actually doing. And yes. either they're breezing through stuff or they're struggling with basic stuff. And so really, every when, when everybody is in this alternative schooling universe for a few months, uh, it, re- it really becomes a perfect time for you to introduce, hey, there's another solution to this problem of educating kids. Uh, and, and, and maybe, you know, is, is kind of the silver lining. It's an ideal time for people to start thinking outside, 
you know, the, the boundaries of what they've thought education was. You're exactly right. And I could have never foreseen that or thought of that. And, and yeah, you, I want to re- you know, emphasize what you said about the the saints that we call teachers that are, you know, several people that work for us in our, at Disco whose wives are teachers and they know that we're starting the school and I would ask them about what they're doing and they're at home trying to do this Zoom thing and it's just, it's really, really frustrating for teachers. I get that. And they are doing everything that they can and you know, just the, the public school system has a lot of kids in it mm-hmm. and there's just no way around that. And so they're, yeah, my hat's off to them. They are trying their best. Well, and and you know, as the administrator of a a new school that there's a lot of work involved in it, whether it's 19 students, you know, or, or hundreds. Um, so I want to shift again. You, you mentioned the differences between Amarillo and Lubbock, uh, and, and you chose to, after having started businesses in Lubbock, Mm -hmm. you've planted yourself here, uh, both with, the academy and with your real job, I guess. Um, <laughs> tell me, like, tell me why Amarillo is has been the place where you've decided to kind of put down roots, mm-hmm. as opposed to Lubbock, as opposed to Borger. Mm-hmm. I think the difference in Amarillo and Lubbock would be it feels to me Lubbock is trying really hard to be like a Dallas Fort Worth, and those are the conversations that you would hear or I would hear people having in, in the leadership in the city. I've never heard that in Amarillo. I've never heard our city leadership say, well, you know, Dallas and Fort Worth has this, so we're trying to do that. It's no, you know, a lot and, of people in Amarillo want us to be Borger. Like they, they want to go back, stick to the, yeah, the really small part. You know? Right. And so when, when you're in Lubbock, it feels very transient. So you've got, I looked up, my dad asked me the other day, how many students are at tech? I think it's like 40,000. Mm-hmm. So when you've got 40,000, that's just, I th- yeah, maybe that was, I can't remember what the, if that was in Lubbock or whatever, but you've got South Plains College, you've got Texas Tech, you've got Lubbock Christian University. When you've got, I don't know, 50, 60,000 kids coming in and out, it just creates a different economic structure of what mm-hmm. people think, what people are you know doing and how they're growing. And it just feels... Nah, fake is not the word. All my Lubbock friends out there, I'm not talking. I don't mean it. It's, it just doesn't feel homegrown. Amarillo feels like the biggest little city or the biggest small town in America. Okay, Lubbock does not have that feel. Lubbock has this feel of it's it's growing really fast, and Amarillo is growing really fast too. But it still has this feel of it's this is the biggest small town in America. It's what as why I describe it and. It seems like Amarillo has this inward focus on, you know, Hodgetown, that thing. That's not happening in Lubbock. They're not getting, you know, they're they're getting the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. Whereas we're building a ballpark downtown, that kind of stuff. And so it just, it always felt transient to me. And on it, you know, when you've got 50,000, 60,000 kids, businesses have to make different decisions. Some people can't be there. You can't depend on college students all the time to do certain things. And so it just, I think any college, it just feels like a college town. And I, you know, probably I've never spent much time in college station, but probably the way people would describe college station, super fun to go to school there, but it feels like it's just, you're coming and going, it's revolving door. Mm -hmm. And Amarillo feels like this very sturdy, very stable place that you can, that there's a base from. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by SKP Creative. I asked SKP what message they wanted listeners to hear today, and the creative team there wanted to remind you 
that the next general municipal election in Amarillo is May 1st, 2021. It's coming up. You'll hear Michael and I talk about the city government a little in the next section of this episode. These elections matter. We'll be electing for mayor, city council representatives, AISD school board, Amarillo College Board of Regents, and more. Early voting is underway already, and election day is May 1st, so SKP Creative and me, myself, I want to encourage you to go vote. Put it on your calendar. And thanks again to SKP Creative for the reminder. Okay, I'm back with Michael Hanning. Michael, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus, a great place if you're a kid who just needs to learn stuff on his own. Um, It's the largest history museum in Texas. Its collection includes at least eight fossilized mammals discovered here in the Texas Panhandle, including a slingshot deer. Mm. I don't know if you've seen those... Um, the the fossils that they have of those deer, but they have the weirdest antlers. It really do no, look like go, a slingshot. We go, we go once a year. I love the Panhandle Plains Museum. So do my boys. So we're it's, that's great for for small boys. The you know the museum has a whole lot of stuff, but like the and they have oil paleontology and part is just always been fascinating. That, and they have an oil and gas exhibit. Oil and gas. If you yeah. want to understand, it is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's. I, I'm a big fan of the Panhandle Plains Museum. Okay, well, it uh, you can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to enter or answer those in as much detail as you want. Uh, the first one is not a question I always ask, but I'm going to ask you: What was your favorite subject in school? My favorite subject in school, I was not great at school, and I'm not good with abstract thinking and concepts. And I always said there should never be letters in a math problem. It never made sense to me. <laughs> Variables. Are... I mean, are you kidding me? So uh, accounting actually became my subject that I liked because double entry accounting has to work out. It has, right. to, it has to balance. If your balance sheets doesn't, if it doesn't balance, then you have to go back and figure out. And there's a debit and a credit. Double entry accounting, it works out every time. Straight so, numbers, straight numbers, no algebra. There's, there's no letters. It works every time. So, you know, I did not, I did not do well in school until I went and got my MBA, and I, because I loved it, it was mm-hmm. fun, it was relative, and I really thrived in it. And yeah, accounting makes makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, what's one thing 2020 revealed to you about local people? I think that it revealed. And this may sound cliche, but in the panhandle, I, I think when you come out of a pandemic and you look backwards, I don't know what we have to compare it to, but we, you know, it was a it was a tragic thing, but it also it's going to make us better. And we are we as a as the panhandle, I saw somewhere, I don't know if, if I don't know who shared it, but Emerald was like in the top five or ten most generous cities. Did you is that something? I yeah, I've yeah, I think so. I think it was Clay Stribling with the Emerald Area Foundation said it on the podcast that you look at the per capita giving during that time that yeah, we were we were right up at the top. Yeah. And so that just blew me away. And Despite I Despite being harder hit than a lot of parts of the country. Exactly. And I know lots of people that that I'm involved in some nonprofits and I know churches and other people that run nonprofits and they were not lacking. They spent more money, helped more people and had more cash in their bank accounts at the end of the, at 2020 than ever. And I just sat back and thought, man, that is just, that's great. We really do. And that is the spirit. It was not even a question. Our church converted its gym into a blood drive thing. And we, they started text, you could text them and they'd bring you toilet paper or whatever food. And mm-hmm. it just, we just really adapted. And I, I, I don't know, after you come through things like 
you know, World War II or these different things that have struck our country just blindsided us, we look back and go, man, that's, we did it. We, we really will pull together and make things happen for the better of everybody. And those times have often been followed by a lot of growth. And I, I'm, very encouraged to to hope that maybe that's the case here. Absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing some signs of that in Absolutely. the economy's good, and uh, that 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 sort of crisis and and the ways that we reinvented ourselves and bonded together will kind of just set us up to flourish. Absolutely. What does this area have too much of? I think this area has too much urban sprawl. Okay, and what I mean by that is there's a there's a speaking great, of Dallas and right. Lubbock. I mean, there's this book called. Uh, strong towns, and it's a really good read. About have you read it? I have not read it, but I'm very familiar with the strong okay. towns movement. So, very, very briefly, what they're saying is, and, and Hod, I'm going to use Hodgetown as an example. What would have happened if we would have built Hodgetown? Let's say we went and bought some land out between Bushland and Amarillo. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure to get the plumbing and the sewer and the water and all the stuff to that would have been astronomical. And then we've had to redo it in 10 years. And then we've got to build sidewalks. And oh, and now there's this whole thing about spreading out like that. Whereas if we'll do it downtown, yeah, we paid Coca-Cola a bunch of money for that property, but all the infrastructure was there. Mm-hmm. And we share infrastructure. And that's kind of making the point. And I'd love to see Amarillo continue down that road and not try to go build out as far west and east as we possibly can because you don't realize the cost. Who's going to pay for that? Yeah. Oh, we'll just have to raise taxes to help pay for the infrastructure to get it out there. Whereas we've got all the infrastructure already there. So I want to, I don't want to see a whole lot more urban sprawl. I like to see it from within the city, you know, city limits and around. And it's a challenge because we're surrounded by so much empty space. Right. I mean, you have New York City, you have right. Chicago, where there are these landlocked places. They can only grow up. Right. Um, we don't have to grow up. Right. So we don't. But in a lot of places or in a, in a lot of situations, it really is so much better to do that, mm-hmm. to increase the density mm-hmm. um, because it does save money. It just is counterintuitive. Right. What does this area not have enough of? I think this area doesn't have enough 30, 40 year olds that are getting involved in the leadership of nonprofits, of city government, of the city boards that are out there. I, you know, I think that it it would not be helpful to have a bunch of 32 year olds on city council, but I also don't think it's good to have a bunch of 60 year olds on city council. I think it's good to have a voice of the 30, 30 to 40 crowd mixed in there. And for some reason that's just, that doesn't really happen that often. I I serve on the LGC board for the city and it's, there's me and one other guy or, you know, in our thirties, but everyone else is, is older. And I don't know why, I've tried to share and post and talk to my friends and and people that I work around and work with. Like, get involved. Mm-hmm. People are making decisions, big decisions. Yeah, for the, the future of the our city. AEDC, those boards. Those are important boards, and we don't just need 60-plus-year-old people serving on them. And same for the city council. So I want to see more 30- and 40-year-olds getting involved and helping make decisions and shaping the future. And a lot of that is is such a cultural issue and a lifestyle mm. issue because if you're going to be involved on a board, you're making a commitment, you're mm-hmm. volunteering for it, and you got to figure out how to do that with your job. And a lot of people in their 30s and 40s, they have families, they're like moving forward in their careers. You can't give, you know, 
six or eight or 10 hours a week to being on city council when you're trying to build a business. Like there's, there's so much kind of built into the whole structure that prevents people in their thirties and forties from doing it, which is why you have retired folks, right? you know, doing that kind of thing. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We've got to figure out a way to get more people involved, to make it easier for people to be involved with that, whether it's from the employer side, from the city government side, all of that stuff. Something along that line, I was on a citizen review committee to review the city charter and look at things to bring to the city council for for review. And I can say this here and now, but one of the things was the city council pay. Do you know what the city council gets paid? It's, it's like $6 a week or something. It's something I think it's terrible. 20. I think it's 20 Is it bucks 20? a week or okay. something. You're not, you're not making any money. No. And it was this was written in 1912 or something. And that was good money back yeah, then. Yeah, it was. And so one of the things, obviously, that is an absolute political hand grenade. If any of our current or any council member ever says to the public, hey, we're going to vote on giving ourselves a raise. It's just, yeah. a, it's a hand We hate grenade. it when Congress does oh, it. We man. don't like it when city council does right. it. Right. But the thing I want to point out is that we are never going to have, if, if you're taking someone out in the community that is working a job making $60,000, $70,000 a year, to take the amount of time it takes to do city council work and show up for the meetings and all that, they're going to have to miss work. Mm-hmm. And if they work an hourly job, they're missing out on their income. And so if we want to say, hey, we don't just want business owners, we're going to have to do something different. And I'm not saying I want to pay, I mean, there's some cities in Texas, I can't remember which ones, I mean, 60, 70 grand a year yeah. to be on the city council. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's be realistic about, we're never going to get people who from lower socioeconomic places, if we don't do something different and pay the, you know, oh, you get $40 a month for being on city council, but it's going to cost you $1,000 a month for missing work. So I'd, you, love for, I, I'd love for citizens to have that conversation because city council can't say that. No, and, and no. they don't want it. But, you but know, otherwise, you either have to be retired or you have to be a business owner who has the flexibility. Right. Or you have to, like, not really be working. I mean, yeah. that, that's not anybody. Uh, there, there's a very small section of Amarillo people who can do that. Exactly. And I feel like if you start having that conversation, you're going to have this crowd over here on the fringe just saying, oh, they're crooks. They're just trying to give themselves more money. It's like, no, 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 no. We're trying to get more people involved. Exactly. So I'd love to see that happen. I don't know how, that, I don't know how to yeah, do that. But. I, that's, that's a great answer. How do you describe, and you've covered this a little bit, but how do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? I, well, yeah, I say I say Amarillo is the biggest small town in America. It feels like you you cannot go anywhere and not see someone. I can, it's just it's crazy who you run into or be in California at the airport and see someone from Amarillo. But I would also, as far as you know, the landscape, whatever. But the people is how I like to describe Amarillo, and I would say that we are very generous, extremely independent. Okay, you are you know we, like we are in the top whatever cities of generosity. You're also not going to tell us what to do. Yeah, we have this mentality. There's a there's a fantastic book called The Worst Hard Time, and it talks about the Dust Bowl and the type of people that moved to this area and stuck a stake in the ground and said, "I think I'll move here where there's nowhere to grow anything, and there's no life, and we're just going to figure it out, and you're not going to take it from us, and we're going to just either make it or die." That spirit is in the Panhandle yeah. much more than other places. We're just going to move away. And so I, I describe it as just really very generous people, also very, very independent, self-reliant, whatever you want to call that. So it's a, And sometimes that's a really, really good thing, and sometimes, and sometimes that's a, a real, challenge we have to overcome. Exactly. It's, it's, it's both really good and can be really bad. What's your favorite local restaurant? Bangkok, Tokyo, hands right. down. 
And I've heard several people in the restaurant, but I, I got to thinking about that question. And my wife and I, it's one of our, our favorite places to get takeout, and especially during the pandemic. And I want to say maybe out of 50 or 60 times, they've not messed up our order. I, you, you don't go in there and they say, oh, it'll be 10 more minutes. Yeah. It's ready when they say it's going to be ready. It's cons- They're just, I don't know how they do it. I, I honestly, I want to go in there and say, can I just see what you're yeah, doing? It's back a here? small building. How, how many it's small pe- kitchen. Yeah, you've got to have 20 people back here. Yeah. Like, but I don't know. I kind of want to peek back there and say, how are you doing this? You guys are just killing it. So Bangkok, Tokyo, okay. hand down. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I guess I would say the the flavor of Coffee Palace. I don't go to, I started thinking about this question. I don't have a lot of, I don't do coffee out a lot. I make it at my house. When people want to meet, it's almost always at Palace. And that's totally fine. I think Palace, I think they're, I think Patrick probably does the best job of, of his coffee of, you know, roasting and it tastes chocolatey and smooth. And, mm-hmm. and I just drink black coffee. I don't really get, you know, so I'd have to say Palace probably is the best tasting coffee for okay. sure. Do you have a particular location that you go to? Summit. It seems like always, always people always want to meet at Summit. It's a hopping it, place. It is the hopping place. Connected to a bank. So that helps. Right. It's always people want to meet at Summit. Okay. And when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I don't remember. I have a Norwegian sister-in-law. Okay. And when you have people from outside, it's, I think it was probably five or six years ago. All right. And she's an artist. And so we Was got she s- aware of it coming in? No. Like it, it wasn't no. on her radar? We're like, hey, we'll go. She's an artist. And so she did spray paint and she went out there and spray painted and we took some pictures. But it's just shocking. I have a friend that just moved out there recently, not to Cadillac Ranch, but out west of town. And when we drive by there... I look over there and there's 25 cars lined up every time. There's 50 people every day. I've never not seen a line of cars, even on cold and snowy days. You see people out there. So probably been five years, but I drive by there more frequently now and yeah. just shocked how many people go out there. Yeah. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. Michael, I like to end by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or experience? I am going to say, this is a lot of of great things, but I'm going to say Hope Choice uh, Pregnancy Centers, it used to be called CareNet, Mm -hmm. and most people think that that's what it is. You hear that word, and it's a place that you go for a crisis pregnancy, but Hope Choice has ministry and does things for the community I don't think anyone knows about. They interact with 30,000 students on a a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. They provide all kinds of benevolence care, and I've been involved with that for a long time, and through the pandemic, saw them just just really change gears and just, they just will help in any way. I mean, new parenting classes, daddy daycare, whatever it is that, that people are having issues with, they have kind of put themselves out there to help meet the need, the local needs of people. And so just really love that organization. Okay. Michael Hanning, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Thanks appreciate for, it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Michael for the interview. If you want to learn more about Acton Academy, visit AmarilloActon.com. That's A-C-T-O-N. As always, thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show, to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring 8 Straight every week, and to SKP Creative and Jimmy John's in Amarillo for their sponsorship. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and the local people who support the show financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey, Amarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Griselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Wes Reeves, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 193. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>